welcome Daniel Yezbik, professor of comics and adaptation and comp rhetoric and composition, um, all things sort of important in our lives there at St. Louis Community College in Wildwood. Um, welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much. I'm, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about um, comics and humor and action figures and animal studies, all of the things that are sort of exciting. And everything that, everything yeah. that matters in the world. Very exciting. <laughs> everything, everything. <laughs> but let's start with this uh, maybe kind of oh, at the very beginning with your um, you yes. know, perfect nonsense. Tell us all about this project. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, sometimes you look back on, on things you've done and you think, oh, I can't believe that turned out that way or I can't believe this happened or that happened. Perfect nonsense is the, is the, is the absolute top example of looking back and just thinking, wow, there were so many things that had to happen for this project to occur. And everything, even though it took a long time, it took about 10 years, uh, it still all fell out in ways that I could not have possibly imagined. So um, for, for people who are very, very into comics history, they've known the name George Carlson for quite a while. Um, Harlan Ellison wrote his famous essay, Comic of the Absurd, uh, in uh, All in Color for a Dime. Um, uh, uh, there's a, a good 20 pages of Carlson in the, uh, the first uh, Smithsonian book of comic book comics. And I got that book uh, as a child uh, for Christmas. And I knew a lot of the things in it. I knew the, uh, the Carl Bark stories. I knew Will Eisner. Uh, I, I, and I, of course, love them. But there was this crazy, bizarre, psychedelic thing in the back that I'd never heard of before. And as a kid, I was a little offended that I had not been exposed to this cool stuff earlier. And those were Carlson's Jingle Jangle Tales and um, uh, Pie Face Prince stories. And it sort of stuck with me all, that, all those years. Uh, and the more I dug, because I was a comics fan and a collector and everything else as a teenager, uh, you couldn't find Carlson anywhere. And it just sort of stuck in my mind. So when I got to college and grad school, when I had access to archives and things, I started researching him and discovered that he was actually a children's illustrator and a poet. And this, here's something that no one has ever talked about. A, a, uh, he was a master of making crossword puzzles. He made millions of crossword puzzles throughout his career for different magazines uh, and just never really got any attention. Uh, and then I, I wrote a short article uh, uh, for Image Text years ago and thought that that would be it. I said, oh, well, I found some things on Carlson. Let's kind of put it together. And then I did a little talk on Carlson at the Image Text conference. And before I was done talking, uh, this uh, very this sort of uh, frenetic, crazy person came running down the aisle at me and said that they desperately wanted the article uh, for the Image Text Journal. That was Charles Hatfield. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Charles, and I, I immediately, I'm very grateful to Charles. He was so excited about the project and he just encouraged it in so many ways. So that turned into another article and a couple of other talks. And before I knew it, I was talking to Fantagraphics about doing a whole book because no one knew anything about this man. Uh, and it was fun to um, dig into the archives and find some other scholars in other fields, uh, scholars in children's literature, scholars in mathematics. Martin Gardner had written an, a, a very obscure essay on Carlson, and it was actually Carlson's work in children's pulps that got Gardner into mathematics in the first place which is really interesting. Uh, and I talked to Martin Gardner on the phone and he wound up sharing all of his Carlson research 
and then uh, before I knew it, I was actually talking to the family, the, uh, the, the great-grandchildren and grandchildren of the Carlson estate, and we were working together to get this man some attention that he certainly deserved. And it's interesting also um, uh, that artists like Carlson, who were so unique, so original, almost like outsider artists, except that they were part of the mainstream sort of publishing industry at the time. They just fell through the cracks. They didn't have the personality of uh, Jack Kirby or Stan Lee or Will Eisner. They weren't hustlers. Uh, he was a quiet, uh, uh, he was also older than a lot of the other artists. Uh, he was just sort of a quiet, old-fashioned artist who would do, um, you know, spot work and publication work uh, and uh, wasn't really good at uh, uh uh, at self-promotion, like some of the some of the big newspaper and comic book uh, cartoonists were, uh, so he just kind of got ignored. And a lot of the times, he wouldn't even sign his name on things; he knew their names. So luckily, the family had a list. Uh, a couple of other collectors had lists of things that he'd done. Uh, I hunted down a few more, and we put together uh, what um, Gary Groth was really excited about, thinking this was going to be a huge hit, this fabulous book that everyone was going to want to get a hold of. And according to Gary, it's one of the worst selling fan graphics books ever. <laughs> Not because of the content, but because it just didn't, uh, it, it, the Carlson name just isn't, isn't as well known. We had plans for a sequel. The sequel has not happened. Uh, but thank God for fan graphics. They put everything into it. Uh, I just, uh, I gave the, the wonderful designer some ideas for the cover and he was a huge Carlson fan and went to town on it. As you know, the book has a die cut cover, which is very expensive. Uh, they had complete faith in it. The book won a design award for one of the best 500 book designs of that year worldwide. So it toured the world uh, and it gave, uh, it gave a lot of people some exposure to Carlson and filled in the story. No one knew anything about him. There were all, uh, Harlan Ellison had theories that he was a, you know, a radical sort of proto hippie. This is not true. He was a quiet, little conservative man with an incredible imagination, very much like Lewis Carroll, who was also his idol. He, uh, Carlson had two daughters uh, who he named uh, 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 Dorothy and Alice for obvious reasons. So he always lived in these children's fantasy worlds. And uh, I think we did a pretty good job with it, considering all the things that, that, that happened uh, to get it together. Uh, we still have lots more Carlson to share with the world. My favorite two parts of the book are uh, the, the beautifully restored 50, 60 pages of Jingle Jangle Tales and Pie Face Prince stories in the back. Uh, and then if you look at the cover, you see the, the he had a little spot drawing for a children's textbook about numbers that he did. It was just, he just filled in the drawings, but I fell in love with this little drawing of this squirrel making cookies. I just thought it was such a fun little image. So I mentioned that to the designer and he put it right on the front cover so everyone can finally appreciate this little squirrel. So I think that's kind of nice. So that's probably too much, but there you go. Oh, I love that. And also it sort of reminds people that deep diving in the archives isn't just about folios and Shakespeare. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, now I, I should throw this in too. Uh, the, the Carlson estate, the, the papers, all of Carlson's uh, art, Carlson's copies of things, Carlson's uh, personal notebooks, all of that went to a grandson in Chicago who died suddenly. Uh, and when we heard about that, uh, I kept trying to get a hold of his widow, but of course she was uh, she was uh, in a in a transitional period. No one knew what happened to this stuff. And then the next thing we knew, we heard that the apartment was empty and all kinds of things had gone wrong. Uh, so I thought this book was never going to happen. And then uh, a friend of mine called and said, his friend has the estate. Get over there as soon as you can. So I wound up driving across the country uh, to uh, to an art dealer's house, and we went through the estate. And I explained a lot of it, and he explained a lot of it, and some of it had already been sold, but we wound up getting the bulk of it 
um, uh, to go to uh, Washington University's Modern Graphic History Library. So we managed to keep the bulk of the estate together, which I think is, and, and there's a wonderful online index to Carlson's work that um, uh, WashU has put up and the incredible curator there, uh, um, Sky Lassert has done a fabulous job sort of indexing his work. So you're right, there's a lot of it in the archive that we can still play with. Incredible, incredible story. Um, and actually, you know, sometimes as you know, Daniel, um, these things that we do, um, and especially, you know, on kind of the way, the significance of a shaping sort of figure like George Carlson, mm -hmm. it takes, sometimes it takes maybe another generation, our graduate students, <laughs> or even our undergraduate, right? Um, yes. But the fact is, it's out there, and you did it, and it's important, it's significant, and, and it brings him to the kind of into the not just the scholarly world but also the kind of cultural studies space right yeah well, well i i i certainly appreciate that thank you i've had nothing but very positive comments about the book from fans from scholars from 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 absolutely everybody so i've been very pleased with how it turned out it's probably time to do something else with carlson <laughs> You know, um, animals, uh, Carlson, you know, um, you, you and your work, your worldview, uh, you're sort of, you're also just a, a really sort of joyful person. Let me, let me ask you, like political humor, you know, and comics and cartoons is also an important part of your life. And why is that? And what, what are some takeaways? <laughs> Boy, that's an open question, but I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to give you two part, a two-part answer, if that's okay. Uh, first of all, um, I, I think you and I agree that one of the greatest things about comics is that comics deal with, with, with whether, they, whether, whether it's directly or indirectly, comics deal with the problems of the world, right? They are something that are, that's very immediate. Um, it doesn't matter what the genre is, whether it's crime or superheroes or, uh, you know, uh, Los Brothers Hernandez, whatever it is, it's responding to issues and problems that we're dealing with right now. And it does it in, in a way that's a little different from uh, journalism, uh, a, a, a little different from cinema, a little different from broadcasting. It's, it's multimodal. It's very intimate. It, it makes comments about the world around us in ways that I think, I, I really believe that all comics in one way or another are trying to make the world a little bit better <laughs> and trying to make us really aware of our flaws. And sometimes that really, really hurts with things like mouse. Sometimes it's just an escapist Sunday Marmaduke strip. Um, but what, 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 whatever it is, the comics medium seems to be reaching out to us to get us to appreciate words and pictures and what they can say about the world around us. So that's, that's one of the reasons why the, why I like working with comics and politics um, the, the, the more historical part of that is I was very fortunate, um, when I was doing my, um, graduate work to be living in the same town as R.C. Harvey, uh, and Bob Harvey and I, who, Bob Harvey is very, uh, a very important, uh, uh, comics historian and journalist. Uh, he and I would, we started, he just came to my class once to talk. And, uh, then after that we had lunch and then we had another lunch and then we started having lunch twice a week and then we were at each other's houses a lot. So Bob is a good and close dear friend. Uh, and Bob of course is probably the world's expert on Milton Kniff. Uh, and he had produced a 80,000 page treatise on Milton Kniff, the ultimate biography that Kniff had actually approved of in his lifetime but it was too big to publish. So one of the last things I did before I left Champagne for my first job um, 
teaching was Bob and I worked out a plan where I would help edit uh, his biography of uh, Milton Kniff, which is called Meanwhile, which Fantagraphics also put out, and OSU actually helped sponsor that since since Kniff is an OSU grad. Uh, so I spent a good two years, it took Bob 10 years to write it, and it took me two years to cut it. Uh, and if you've seen the book, it's, 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 it's still a doorstop. It can do a lot of damage, uh, but it was great fun to work on. Uh, and that really got me into that inner world of, uh, classic illustrators and cartoonists of the, of the twenties, thirties and forties. Bob had done such an incredible scrupulous job of all the context there. So I got into Milton Kniff's story. I got into Al Cap's story. I got into all these characters, uh, and the worlds they created in the, and, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, little little orphan Annie and the politics there, and Gasoline Alley and the politics there, and Crazy Cat and the artistic politics there. So that's where I started diving deeply into that. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized, boy, Milton Kniff is really an incredible human being, and Al Cap is not. Uh, and uh, I guess I wrote a small piece on Al Cap that caught people's attention because um, I, 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 I hate to say this because, like you say, I try to be positive. I don't know of a more despicable human being than Al Cap in many ways. An incredible artist, a wonderful satirist, uh, and people keep asking me to write more on Al Cap, and uh, it's 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 hard because uh, he had such a, a difficult, complicated life. Uh, he had such an angry, vehemently virulent worldview, uh, but his characters are compelling and his ideas are compelling. So it's fun to mix those two together. So I guess that's, again, a long answer. There's something with your students, with, you know, people in general, that humor or laughter that kind of can and maybe opens them to seeing things that they might not be open to otherwise. Definitely. 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 Yeah. No. And there's, and, and, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's the humor. Uh, so, so one of the great things about Al Capsule Abner, as you can see here is, I mean, you can just glance at it and there's five or six different sexual puns going on that people can play with. It's a standard Appalachian family dinner, but there's also a big ham hock there. We're sort of looking at Daisy Mays ham hocks. Little Abner is constantly a sex symbol as well. There's the little talking sausage down in the corner. Uh, he's always filling in stuff that's funny for kids and also funny for adults. And there, you're right, we can find common ground in sort of the earthiness of it, I guess. The other thing thing is the absence of humor so um milton kniff's terry and the pirates mm -hmm. some of those uh uh one particular strip from terry and the pirates was the first comic strip to be read into the congressional record because he stopped the drama and he stopped the action and he told a story about um about the american military and how much they sacrifice every day and kniff's famous terry and the pirates uh uh, ho holiday Christmas strips were always very important to that and uh, the famous World War II Sunday page where Terry goes off uh, to fight uh, uh, to, uh, to fight the Japanese these are moments where you're expecting escapism, humor, fantasy, whatever it might be and you get something very very different mm -hmm. yeah great so censorship in comics as well that's an area that you've been investigating <laughs> and of course there's a whole long history of you know race oh, yes you know, being censored. Tell us a little bit about your work there. Um, well, again, I've been very fortunate with people who have, uh, who have invited me into their projects. So um, uh, uh, John Jennings, of course, is one of my great closest friends. 
Uh, and uh, he and Damian Duffy had originally worked on this anthology. Damian backed out to do other things or just didn't back out. He just went to do other projects. And Francis Gateward, who uh, is married to David Desser, who was on my dissertation committee. So we had connections as well. I'd taught with Francis for years at uh, U of I. So uh, John and I met there as well. Um, so uh, they wanted to do something that was obviously very, very needed, uh, a, a close focused anthology on african-american comics or pan-african comics or blackness in comics really uh and i said well there's this great ec story and again i think one of the things that i can do is like with the carlson book like with cap and cap and kniff is to find the little edges and corners that sometimes people might miss so judgment day of course is a famous story um Gaines called it maybe the best story they ever published largely out of self-promotion uh but uh, it was a story that was almost censored. Uh, and the, uh, what intrigued me was the stupidity of the censoring. Like sometimes we censor things because they're too, too explicit or they're too politically volatile. This, they wanted to censor the last panel. They wanted to take the tears off, off of the African-American's face. I'm sorry, off the African's face. Uh, and that was just absurd. And even Gaines said that was absurd. Uh, and and that was, so the, the idea of no sweat, we're going to take the sweat off of this black man's face because the idea of a, of a black man sweating in space is somehow offensive. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at the uh, cultural crises of the, of the 1950s. So that was what spawned the essay. And it, I, I, I think it turned out fairly well. Uh, well, the black of the ink went on to win a nice. Yes. Yeah. And uh, of course, that is the curating. And then, of course, the, the careful curating of excellent work like yourself. It's interesting that you talked about going to the kind of the edges um, of the archives and, uh, you know, kind of in a way, the, your early your interest as a Ph.D. student in early British early uh, yeah. literature is right there right yeah right some uh, some of this and, and and i think you'll agree with this too I mean, for us to do what we do i think a part of it has to be we just love being we 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 love finding old things right there's that great line from shakespearean negotiations I, I begin with a desire to speak with the dead, right? And that's kind of what we do. We want to find these old worlds and that are still with us in so many ways, but the actual materials, um, uh, I'm, 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 I often laugh when I talk to people who, who love comics and they truly love comics. They, 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 they love the medium. They, they love the, the narrative diversity, uh, but they've never actually held a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> they've held a graphic novel. They've read everything on comicsology, which is great. I think that's just fine. That's their comics. My comics are things that are, you know, torn up with a staple missing uh, that we flip through and we find little hidden truths that we may have missed. Now that could be all dressed up and revised in comicsology, but the, for, for, for well over a hundred years, right. It's been, it's been pieces of paper stapled together. And I think it's important to, I mean, uh, to at least re remember that at, at some level yeah the materiality so yeah, yeah. animals animal <laughs> studies animal studies speaking of scholarship that's like a really booming kind of right space um but you're bringing that together yes. with comics and of course it makes sense um right but you do something like not only kind of uh, a kind of sort of history but you kind of you know you reveal to us things be that are it's not just animals or anthropomorphic kind of characterizations, right? There's something else going on. What is that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, uh, 
we were we we were talking about this earlier. You know, there's that that point where you've kind of done what you did in grad school, you've taught what you did in grad school, and you start looking around for other things. And for me, that thing is the, the incredibly rich and interdisciplinary world of animal studies. And I, I've I've always loved nature. Uh, I I spent a lot of my uh, life uh, in in northern Michigan. I've always been very uh, eco-conscious and very, very environmentally conscious, which is hard when you study things made of paper and plastic. Uh, <laughs> it, it becomes a personal sort of uh, uh, um, paradox or hypocrisy. Uh, but when I started uh, uh, reading more and more uh, about the Anthropocene and about the, the, the enormous global crises that we will be facing in 10 to 15 years, if we aren't already facing them now, uh, I, I, for me, I just had to find a way to, to, to find a way to make the things that I love somehow relevant to that. And I thought, well, one of the ways that we can help understand what's going on uh, with our climate and with and with the world around us is through the way that we learn about animals, the way that we make art about animals, the way that we appreciate animals. So that's where the animal studies and the animal art first came from. And the more I read and the more I dug, the more I started to love it. Uh, so that's uh, not only because it's fun and because it's incredibly uh, complicated, but also be, 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 because I think it's so urgent, it's so necessary right now. Uh, in, in comic studies, I think it's really necessary because I really believe that the single most influential theme in comics is the talking animal uh and that's especially someone might say well it's the superhero well half the superheroes are animals right spider-man batman cat man uh animal man's uh swamp thing isn't really an animal it's vegetable but it's still very very sort of eco-conscious so if we if we take all of the animal metaphors that we have in the superhero world wolverine right uh and 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 uh, uh start mixing them in to Uncle Scrooge and Crazy Cat and uh, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we see that really uh, comics have been telling animal stories from the very, very beginning. Uh, and the, the, I was very, very flattered that David Herman contacted me to see if I would uh, uh, do a piece on the history of animal comics. And I owe David a lot because he really put up with a lot. I have never had an essay so late in my life. Uh, we had a lot of personal things going on. We had grandparents who were sick. We had car accidents. So whatever. You don't need to know about that. But he was, uh, that man is the most patient man I've ever known. And he was very pleased with the final product, I think. Uh, and it was great fun tracing the themes of animal humor, of anthropomorphic humor, uh, through different phases uh, and through different genres. The talking animal, the pet strip, the sort of angry animals of the under uh, 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 of the underground and the black and white boom, uh, and then uh, again looking at looking at sort of humanoid animals, uh, looking at super animals. There's just so many places we can go. I am still hoping to put together a a, a, a book dealing with uh, totally with animal comics it is my next project if i ever get the chance so um uh, i can't wait for that and of course oh, well that's very kind <laughs> so, um in um well of course we know that even stan lee talks about and i call the i call this uh the geometrizing of the narrative or the character but of course you know behind all of this his you know concepts of the superhero you have the shapes of the animal right so the lion yes. and the yes um yeah. Anyway, it's there. It's all pervasive. We can't wait for your book. Um, let oh, me, that's kind. Well, so yeah, and but then there's also really uh, very contemporary um, spaces, right? Sci-fi speculative spaces um, where you have right. kind of cross-species 
kind of empathy that's becoming a very central part of the narrative. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, and first of all, you, you, you sure picked the three right examples here. This is absolutely perfect. Uh, so we've got Red Dog, we've got Animosity, and we've got Legend. And uh, one of the things, one of the trends that, I, that I'm most interested in is what's happening right now. There's really three themes here. There's the animal-human balance, the, re, the relationship, the pet partner kind of thing, or is what, what, what some people call the companion animal. So you see in, in two of the three cases, you've got people, humans, children paired with animals. Uh, you've also got a, a running theme of cybernetics and robotics dealing with the stuff that Donna Haraway talks about. That we're so we're we're, we're kind of culturally uh, replacing legitimate animal experience not only with pets and zoos, but with with um, with artificial intelligence, with cybernetics, with robotics. So the red dog isn't even really a dog; it's sort of a dog thing. Uh, same thing happening throughout animosity uh and then the third theme that's in all three is this idea of both exploration and apocalypse the two kind of combined there's a lot of anger now between the natural animal world and the human artificial world and the the new um dystopic hybrid visions are are that they seem to speak to us in interesting ways that's what creators are interested in that's what uh current comics consumers are sort of fascinated by i mean the very title of the book animosity uh tells us that this is this is where um th these are of course exaggerated nightmare stories but these are the things that prey heavily on our minds uh legend and i'm really glad you have it there is is uh I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been more of that particular series but there are many many others there's um uh there's uh plague dogs there's squarriers there's all kinds of stories about well um there's still that animal human interaction going on uh, but there are new threats and new worries and maybe the worst worry is what happens when human civilization collapses what do the animals do then so mm -hmm. uh there's it's a it's a that's really a whole separate book in itself because there's so many of these stories coming up now there's autumn lands there's uh the 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 new sort of darker versions of the teenage mutant ninja turtles which i have not read that much of but it's not as playful as it once was uh and uh and and animosity is sort of split into several different series now as well so. yeah so of course not just entertainment but kind of expressing some of our anxieties but also mm -hmm. maybe you know hey you know if we kind of do certain things today maybe we won't be in a situation um you know this dystopia tomorrow right Right. Well, and, and again, here's comics asking us to learn, asking us to make things better, asking us to change. As we sit here looking at three dystopic animal stories in, in the middle of a pandemic that's locked us all down with our pets, uh, there's a lot of that going on. I mean, there was a great joke going around the Internet recently. Is like uh, nations dogs love whatever the heck's going on in the world, right? Because their people are home all the time. And then there's all these, uh, I'm on a couple sort of eco-environmentalists and they're all saying like animals are showing up where animals have not been okay. for years because the people have kind of pulled back and uh, you know, re 
retreated and retrenched a bit. Uh, and just last night, my wife uh, woke us up because two owls were on our roof, uh, and they—they they, we haven't had, we've never, if we've had them, we've never heard them because of the city noise and the, you know, the traffic and the whatever's going on. But we got to listen to owls all night long, which is something that, I mean, this is a terrible thing. This pandemic, there's no doubt about it. But it's interesting to see how nature sort of pulls back uh, or comes back, uh, and these stories all all speak to that kind of thing. Action figures, action oh heroes. Yeah, <laughs> well, Jonathan, you guys have had a lot of fun. Yes, right? yes. But, I, I cannot take full credit for um, uh, for this material, but I, I will say uh, my good friend and co-author, Jonathan Alexandrados, is probably the greatest scholar of American toys working right now. He's also an incredible playwright. He's also an incredible teacher. Uh, and he and I uh, started uh, talking more and more at uh, – uh, the wonderful um, uh, Page 23 conference in Denver every year and discovered that we both had a fondness for what toys do culturally. Uh, and we started working on some things together. Uh, you were very supportive when we sort of uh, sort of shocked the room at OSU a few years ago <laughs> with bringing all our toys into the room and having to play with it. But the more we started talking about it, the more mature ideas got. And uh, we decided, again, if comics are there to um, help us fix things or help make us more aware of things, whether we're laughing or, or worrying about it. Toys do the same thing. Toys and material culture, so much of who we are has to do with the things that we hold when we're young and the way that we play with them and the way that we discover with them and what they are. We certainly saw that. The greatest example recently is the, 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 the wave of incredibly empowering um, Black Panther and Captain Marvel toys that came out in recent years for African-American children to play with positive representations of themselves. Not that we didn't have that before in other places, but we certainly have it there. And for very, very empowered alpha girls to find their, uh, to find their world through Captain Marvel. So important, but it goes farther back than that. Um, Jonathan and I have been working on it for years now, and the more we dig, the more interesting it gets. So the action figure for us is the sort of, the action figure is the great toy of the 20th century. There's no question. It's part doll. It's, uh, it's part sort of um, fetish object, especially the way that adults collect them, <laughs> right? It's, 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 it's not just a toy for them. It's more of an ornament. It's a statement about um, their mythologies, about their taste, about their, about their affluence. Uh, and because it's posable and movable and because many of them have costumes that we can change, it's all about transformation. It's all about identity discovery. It's all about gender identification. Uh, so we've, we, we've, we've had a lot of fun uh, finding these really, really important seminal toys and talking about what they, what, what they have done culturally. Also, like comics, um, toys and action figures, even though they are very, very important to material culture, um, they also are part of one of the nastiest, most difficult and competitive in, in, uh, 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 American I industries that there are. Most toy CEOs have uh, have had some pretty complicated legal concerns. Uh, so, and you know, the battle between Barbie and GI Joe, um, uh, the the strange uh, licensing that went on with Mego, all the variants. Uh, uh, the um, I mean, uh, Kenner's Star Wars toys sold so well. And George Lucas had such a bad deal on them that he actually held up making the rest of the movies until that contract was over. So 
I didn't yeah, so, oh, oh, it gets even weirder than that. But yeah, <laughs> so everyone was waiting for those uh, for, for those next three films, but he didn't want to do it in, un, until he could get a better deal on on his percentage for the toys. Also, as we all know, or as often as often known, you know, Han Solo was supposed to die in the films, but his action figure in the Millennium Falcon sold so well that they kept him alive. So here's an example of a toy actually changing the narrative of a multi-million dollar media franchise. Uh, and then the other things we've got here, um, the other thing I love about the more you read into these histories of toys is you find these heroes very much like George Carlson or um, uh, Milton Kniff. You find people like Charlotte Clark who had a unique contract with Walt Disney Studios. She actually got her name on her very special dolls. They built her a house on the Disney lot for her to manufacture her dolls. If you know how Disney works, you know how rare it is to get any credit whatsoever. So this is, this is a woman in the 1930s, you know, actually dictating the rules of how these dolls are going to be made to Walt Disney and his brother. That's unheard of. You get things like the, the Mego Falcon doll, which we're pretty sure. Um, we haven't confirmed it completely, but we're pretty sure that's the first ever African-American action figure probably so uh and it was just it was done uh migo did it because no one had done one yet i don't think they had any great cultural interests they weren't trying to uh, make a political statement they wanted to sell toys but that falcon doll uh i i grew up in a largely uh uh african-american neighborhood and of course i had batman and spider-man and such and the green goblin but all my friends had the falcon because they, they being being black, that was the character they wanted. And it, whenever we played in the street or at each other's houses, they'd bring their falcons with them because that's that's the one that meant something to them. So there's 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 a lot of personal stories, a lot of cultural stories. There's just a lot to say about how toys function. Yeah, I had no idea about the even the Han Solo. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I want to show you something. Sure. So. Speaking of Jonathan, he uh, <laughs> he gifted um, this, and of course we also have our Latina superheroes. Oh, finally. fantastic! Uh, yeah, so that's great. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you guys. There's <laughs> there there's something. It's it's beyond just being kind of nostalgic and the sort of sort of fetishistic aspect. There's something um, like you were just telling us in this sort of brief version, uh, important about the material history of their sort of yes. making and presence and transforming um, within the culture that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's actually, it's funny you mentioned, it's really hard to trace because we, uh, Jonathan and I have been working on it, trying to trace what the first Latin action figure really is. Um, it's probably some awful Western stereotype from the 50s, uh, but um, maybe one of the first, the first one that really gets a lot of attention is uh, chips, right? Eric Strauss yeah. chips. And, uh, oh yeah. So do you think? Well, hold on. El Dorado weren't those around the same time? The super could be, fans? could be. Yeah, yeah. I could think be. El Dorado might even come just a little bit. I but I remember both, and I had both. Okay. Um, Great. With you know, Bionic Man and all that other stuff. Right. Um, but so. In a nutshell, Daniel, you are a beloved teacher. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, you, you know all of that stuff. But why, why, why should we teach this? Why should we bring this into our classrooms? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the 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 
why 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 uh, I I I I think the honest answer to that, and I think you'll probably agree with me, is I, I I couldn't help doing it, right? I don't think you could help doing it, right? We bring the things we love to our classes, and we find. Uh, but I also love it when I can show students something they didn't know they cared about. Mm. So when I have students, and and I know Jonathan does this too, when I have students write about a toy that meant something to them as a child. At first they think, oh, this is kid stuff. I'm in college. Why am I writing about a Barbie doll or uh, or uh, Raggedy Ann or the cat in the hat? Uh, but I would say almost always when they're done writing, they come up and they say this, I had, I actually enjoyed this essay. This, I, there were things that I remembered that I had forgotten or they'll talk about, they wind up, they start writing about a doll their grandmother gave them, but the essay changes into remembering the song she used to sing them when she was a little girl. So there are, keeping students off kilter, teaching them about texts that have unexpected benefits, whether it's a comic strip or a toy or a doll, uh, really allows them to dig deeper and more richly into their own memory and maybe become a little more tolerant and aware of other people's experiences as well. So um, why comics? Because comics saved me. Comics gave me a world to think about uh, when I was young and, and didn't really uh, have the best prospects. Um, why Why toys? Because toys are fun and t- learning should be fun and teaching teaching is fun when it, when it works well. Uh, and there's, there's so much that has to do with, I think, fun and... Uh, I, 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 I think fun and wisdom are very closely connected. Uh, and uh, the more I can show students how to do that, uh, the better off I think we all are. Can't wait to uh, have the opportunity one of these days to sit in on one of your classes. Oh, that's very I'll kind. I'll do one of those Zoom bombs that I've been reading about. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. We've talked about kind of the archive. We've talked about animals mm-hmm. and comics. What's, what is exciting for you in comic studies today? Uh, 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 well, mostly that there is one. <laughs> that the comic studies is, is, is actually here. I mean, uh, and I think we're all part of it. We, we're all at that vanguard that was sort of fighting for legitimacy, right? Uh, I got to tell you a, little, a quick story because it's so funny. So when I was in grad school, I got to teach my first ever comic survey. It was uh, English 106, and we called it Biff Boom Pow, the Great American Graphic Novel or something like that. And uh, the, uh, U of I had a contest. You could write in uh, to the administration to ask permission to teach a class, and they, they accepted the comics class. And, it, um, and one of the students in that class, by the way, was Damian Duffy, who has now become quite an important creator uh, and scholar himself. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was great news. But um, so the so the 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 class went on the books and it filled within 48 hours. It was already full, and I was excited because this is this is 1998, uh, 99, somewhere in there. We're not we're, comic studies isn't quite legitimized yet. I think it's safe to say. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, U, U, U of I's department was incredibly supportive. Um, the students loved it. There, 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 there was a wait list. I let everybody in. It was a big comics party twice a week. It was a blast. But I was walking down the hallway um, in, the, in the department, and uh, this older professor who I had had, who was an excellent teacher, he was a uh, Ben Johnson scholar and known for being very conservative, very soft-spoken, very quiet. He pulled me aside. He leaned over to me, and he said, I just want to let you know that I know about this class you are teaching, and I completely support and endorse what you're doing, even though you will probably bring the Chicago Tribune down on our heads. 
<laughs> and then he shuffled away. And I, I was always very proud that even he was like, yeah, this will be a good thing. I think so. It's great that we now have comic studies. It's great that we have comic studies degrees and programs. And I'm meeting grad students who have spent the last four or five years studying comics. This is this is glorious time. Our our, our field is growing in so many ways. Uh, it's growing in the archive. It's growing in the media adaptations. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's growing in terms of international comics and manga and bad dessinée and all kinds of things. So, and it's great that we now have these forums where we can all sit and talk students, scholars, fans, uh, teachers, um, high school teachers, middle school teachers. I had a great conversation the other day. Uh, we do these um, first Fridays at the St. Louis Science Center, and I was on a, I was on a Blade Runner panel with a uh, middle school science teacher who was looking for ways to integrate cyber, cyberpunk and, and science fiction into his classes. So just to have these forums is just an, it's a wonderful, exciting time to do what we do. And the amazing thing is people keep letting us do it really. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, it's great. I mean, there's, there's, there's little factions and preferences and things, but uh, I, I, I find that all part, part, part of the growing pains. It's great fun. Well, with that, Daniel Yesbik, scholar, Teacher, um, you know, lover of comics. Thank you for joining Professor Latinx. Thank you, sir. It was great fun. Thanks for having me.